Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week I am joined on the show by Chris Curry, the founder of Ministry Cycles, who I think it is fair to say has taken a rather unusual path to founding a bike company and in keeping with that, has developed a rather unconventional bike in the Psalm 150 that he has launched. And so Chris and I sat down to chat about the whole story, which begins almost 15 plus years ago with the patenting and development of his 3VO suspension system and with a bunch of steps along the way and a whole lot of interesting stuff from Chris about what goes into starting a company and getting something off the ground and patenting a suspension system and a whole lot of other bits and pieces and little nuggets of wisdom from him resulted in the fully machined aluminum Psalm 150 frame that he is now taking pre-orders for. And so it's a pretty cool conversation and a rather unique look into what goes into a little one-man bike company that is doing things very, very differently from most other companies out there. So I had a lot of fun with it. I think you're going to enjoy it and learn a bunch. But before we get into it, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to check out our Blister Plus Spot membership, which in addition to all of the standard Blister member benefits that are in themselves excellent, you also get $25,000 of injury insurance if you are hurt doing any number of outdoor activities including skiing mountain biking running and a whole bunch more the full list is in the link in the show notes and it is a pretty exciting program because injuries happen accidents happen and even if your health insurance is pretty good you're likely to be out of pocket for a substantial chunk of change and spot for not a whole lot of money will cover that for you so check it out sign up it's a pretty great program and with that let's get right to my conversation with chris curry well chris great to sit down and chat bikes with you how are you doing today and where are you today uh, I am home here in Vancouver, Washington. Thanks for having me. And I'll apologize in advance because I may make uh, a few even stranger than normal sounds. Uh, I was doing a little testing yesterday and ended up landing on some uh, some ribs that I think I cracked earlier uh, late in the summer. And uh, so everything is totally fine except for when it's not. And every once in a while I will move or speak in a way that my body uh, does not like. And uh, and then all bets are off. I, I may make a sound that I, I don't mean to make. So, Well, yeah, uh, sorry to hear that. And ribs are not a particularly fun one. Just no, as you said, it's like fine, except when it's not is, I think. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> it's that time of the year when the light comes at you sideways and there are whole sections of trail that are just missing. And uh, I got I got blinded at exactly the wrong time. And when I rode back later to see what I hit, it turns out there's a basketball size uh, root bed there. Just a giant ball uh, that I had no idea was even there. And uh, yeah, mm. that's not good to hit at pace. Yeah, there do tend to be a few of those around Western Washington. <laughs> how it how it goes. So, uh, well, hope those heal up soon. 
and thank you hope that we don't induce too many of the odd noises out of you just for your <laughs> sake i'm not as worried about the audio but um well our main topic at hand here is uh your new company ministry cycles and the bike you've been working on with that but um before we really dive into ministry i think we kind of need to wind the clock back a bit and start the story fair bit earlier because this has sort of been i think it's fair to say a little bit of a slow build up that's been yeah happening for a good long while now and um the as we'll discuss in much more detail in a few the kind of core suspension design of the bike is something that you've been working on for quite some time now so take us back to the beginning of 3vo and what the story is there yeah that goes back to probably the early 2000s um where i used to have a a hot rod custom built bike shop that did a lot of work with all the greats the the uh early santa cruz and titus and some of the wild stuff that was out uh back in the late 90s early 2000s and um really fell in love with uh the technology behind the bikes i'd I'd always loved bikes but I got really involved in how how they were working, what was going on with the kinematics and um, what made suspension systems work, why I liked the way some bikes felt better than others. And um, so many things were changing uh, rapidly, not that they're not now, but they were changing very rapidly. Then we had, uh, you know, suspension had barely landed. We were all switching to disc brakes. Uh, The 29er was becoming a thing. And so with everything in flux, there were certain characteristics that I, I wasn't quite getting out of uh, the bikes that I was riding that I was hoping to uh, hoping to find. And um, I was brave enough to be stupid and I, I started getting really involved in, uh, you know, with no engineering background, I got really involved in, in how to make a bike that would ride the way I wanted it to ride. And <clears throat> I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but it... It, more specifically, it was around uh, keeping everything tight and controlled with the bigger wheels because 29ers were uh, a bit of a problem in the early days when it came to suspension. Nobody quite knew where to put that big wheel. It didn't have a lot of room to travel up and uh, and there were some real constraints and some handling issues and stuff. And so I uh, got really involved in that, a bunch of uh, misadventures uh, looking to develop something, but ended up coming up with something that I I liked a lot, but I, I, I didn't garage build it. I didn't do anything. I designed it all on computers and taught myself enough to be fairly dangerous there and uh, just d- designed it and sort of sat on it for many years. And then finally, after I sold the online uh, business that I had, uh, the, the online bike shop, I was finally able to kind of focus on it a little more uh, specifically and uh, create a proof of concept product with some help from friends. So made a little small production run of sample bikes. And um, long story short, uh, it worked. Uh, So everything that was uh, all the way from a genuine cocktail napkin sketch, like uh, the first things were really like sketched out how I wanted this thing to work, to to working through it and teaching myself enough SolidWorks to, to work out the 2D movement and everything to being able to throw a leg over one and go take it for a spin. The basics were there, and then it's been a refi- refinement process really ever since. Sure. And I mean, I'd love to sort of 
pause there and go at least a little bit into the weeds if you'll indulge me on that. So when you're talking sure. about suspension kind of needing to get figured out for 29ers after being earlier days with 26 inch wheels at that point. Yeah. Um, what did you see as being the limitations? I mean, I'm imagining we're talking kind of like slacker C2 bangles, everyone trying to make a 29er with the shortest chainstays in the universe at that point. <laughs> and yeah still having front derailers on the scene as well. Oh yeah. Complicating the whole both packaging and also making dialing in suspension performance a lot more complicated because you had so much variation in chain position, but exactly. uh, Yeah. You you tell me more about that. Yeah. uh, All those factors were serious headwinds and in some ways the designers have it a lot easier these days. Um, the uh, you obviously couldn't have many high pivots if you were still shifting the front uh, chain ring back and forth between a couple options, and and there were still triples back then. For God's sake, uh, the the mountain bike triple is one of the most uh, kids be happy that you didn't have to try to make a mountain bike triple chain ring work uh, up front. So there there were a, a huge array of challenges, but. Um, I would say the one through line through everything and the one thing that's that's stayed true this whole time was that the 29ers are challenged. Uh, the same thing that makes a 29er so stable is also a design challenge when it comes to suspension because your your bottom bracket is lower. So you're effectively sitting, you know, in the bike and there's where some of that stability comes from that, that, that people like the, the feeling that the wheels are enveloping you and you're a little more, uh, your, your center of gravity feels relatively lower because you're sitting down in the bike as the wheels come up around you versus sitting up on top of the bike. And most bikes, uh, uh, most early suspension systems were all designed around 26 inch wheels and uh, they did not nearly have the bottom bracket drop. Uh, and by that, I mean, they, they, they sat taller relative to their axles. So you had a, a bike that from a suspension standpoint was a little, a little easier to design for with the smaller wheels. Um, I mentioned that the big 29 inch wheel, you, you had clearance issues you know as you said you would literally smack it into the seat tube because you just didn't have that much room for it to articulate upward because the overall diameter of the wheel was so much bigger but the the real problem was that in order to make them work in addition to that with the bottom bracket being lower and you kind of having that great sitting down inside the bike stable feel if you imagine looking at a bike from the side view and taking that bottom bracket around which the crankset rotates and lowering it, that's almost like, and, and leaving the axles where they are in space, it's almost like starting the bike through its travel uh, before anything begins to articulate or move. So you were almost like starting behind the, 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 the starting line there when it came to suspension design. So you had to figure out a way to work with that lower bottom bracket height. And so, as you said, chainstay length, it was, it was relatively easy to make a bike with really long chainstays uh, back in the day. It was, it was challenging to make something with, uh, with what would even be considered uh, a little bit long by today's standard chainstays. So uh, that was really one of the challenges. And, and everybody was trying to come up with some ways to, to do that, to, to balance that. You can't just send the axle flying rearward uh, because then you get all kinds of weird chain things. You know, we're, we're not dealing with upper uh, uh, upper pulleys or anything like that back then. It was, you still had that front 
triple chain ring and derailleur and all this nonsense to deal with. So, so it was actually quite challenging. And to develop a suspension system that was really compact, really tunable, and dealt with that lower bottom bracket height, that was really the goal. And while everything else has fallen away, and as I say, in some sense, it's become a lot easier to make suspension systems for bikes because you just have fewer variables flying around. Um, that ability to make something that works well with a wide variety of bottom bracket drops has in some ways become even more important because we're, we're pushing things when it comes to bottom bracket drop these days. I know like personally, I'm running really short crank arms and, uh, and, and experimenting with pretty low bottom bracket drops. And, you know, there's, there's different, different horses for different courses, but, um, it's nice to have the ability to kind of tune around that. So that's that's sort of where it is currently. Yeah, and we'll certainly get much more in-depth on the current state of things in a little bit here. But I'm curious to hear more about, you know, you've, as you've, I think, articulated really well, identified the challenges with designing a suspension layout for a 29er, particularly in those early days when, as you said, there were more variables at play than there are at this point, and prevailing geometry was acting against you as well. So what did you do sort of like what was your approach to solving that problem and what was the vision for 3VO as a way to handle all that stuff? Yeah, I, you know, I'd like to say that it was super scientific, um, but what it came down to, I, I kept having this vision of what I wanted the rear end of the bike to do and I, and I couldn't quite art articulate it. Uh, literally. And I, and I, what I ended up doing was reverting to almost child's play. Like I took uh, a little piece of paper and I kind of cut a little triangle out of it and I sketched out the little front half of the bicycle on, on a, another piece of paper. And I actually, uh, in order to visualize what was in my head, I just used this crude little rudimentary tool of these little, this little armature, little paper thing to, uh, to, to see this, the suspension movement, what was going on in my head. And what that let me articulate that I hadn't, I hadn't previously figured out. And mind you, I, had, I was running a company at the time, so I had worked with an engineering crew and I'd gone through and like, here's, here's kind of what, you know, trying to explain what I wanted and, and, and really failing to articulate what I wanted to accomplish with the suspension system. So, you know, as opposed to all that work that I had been doing, like two in the morning, one night, you know, with kids, arts and crafts that were left out from my children, I managed to kind of get my head around what it was I wanted to do. And, and in a nutshell, what I was seeing was that I was, um, if you think of most suspension designs, uh, the single pivot is the easiest thing to, to kind of everybody get their heads around. Usually you got one pivot and the rear end swings up and down, you know, just like a door and uh, you pick where you want that pivot to be and that can control a lot of the characteristics of the bike. And, uh, you know, what I was finding was that I wanted that pivot, I wanted that hinge point to be at a location that it couldn't normally exist um, with, with, a, with physical hardware. You couldn't actually have a pivot there because it was actually uh, almost inside the rear wheel. It was very far rearward. And what it let me do was um, it let the suspension almost rotate on itself. So if you picture um, the, the swing arm pivoting, almost rotating back and forth, like oscillating from a point in the middle of the swing arm. 
So that didn't kick the axle back really far, so you don't have a lot of pedal kickback and some of these negative things that happen when you send the axle rearward and the chain tugs and all this other stuff. But it had some other characteristics, and at the time, my my what passed for my brain at the time didn't really understand all these things. But what was actually going on that was working well is you were generating anti-squat and anti-rise values that were actually very beneficial, but you were doing it in ways that really hadn't been done before. You were doing it by moving your pivot rearward as opposed to moving it higher. And and the, that gets mega in the weeds. There's in the weeds and then there's down the rabbit hole and then that's in the weeds. And so, I, you know, I don't want to get too, too hairy, but... Um, in a nutshell, what it was letting me do was find a new way to explore options with those mechanical terms, the anti-squat and the anti-rise that, that really lead to some beneficial things. And how it was doing that was very different from, from other designs. And then from there, there was the, hey, I'm doing something here and pursuing a patent. And, um, and, and, and then that pursuit of the patent was its own fun uh, little adventure. Uh, today, I get a lot of questions from people asking about about doing patents and everything. And so happy to share anything about that. But um, that was a novel enough concept. What was going on was unique enough at that point that it both accommodated all those challenges with the 29-inch wheel and it let me unlock some ride characteristics that were what I was actually looking for from a performance standpoint. Well, yeah, that all makes sense. And uh, I think you've already kind of teed up the next step here, but patent and what was next from there? You kind of just decided to pursue a patent on it and how'd that all go? That that was wild. It was, it was unique enough where the patent seemed to seem to make sense. And um, I've since tried to write a patent. This is literally in the last couple of weeks. I've since tried to write a patent all by myself uh, just to see if I could do it for something unrelated to the suspension system. It's something, something new I was working on. Um, and I don't recommend that. It's a wild trip if you try to do the legalese and write a patent yourself and do all the, the drawings and diagrams and everything. But at the time, I went the conventional route. I hired a lawyer. And uh, went through a long back and forth process. And the one thing that I, I can tell anybody who's who's listening, who uh, has a, an inclination to try to patent something that you've done, um, on the one hand, go for it. That's super cool. We all need to be making stuff. Um, that's great. On the other hand, I do think there's something really great about trying to write out your idea even if you plan on hiring a lawyer and everything, because all they're going to do, the first thing they're going to do is say, okay, now explain it all to me. You know, you're going to need to write it out anyway. And, and that's really a completely separate skill. So you may be uh, gifted in design uh, or you just may be really tenacious and willing to work at bang your head against it until you make it work uh, more like I did. But articulating what you were able to do in real simple terms whole different animal. So, you know, and if you, if you want quick practice, just write a little instruction manual on how to do anything you do in the course of your day. You know, if you, you make, make, make yourself a cup of coffee in the morning, write out the steps as if somebody's just visiting from another planet and has never had to use a coffee maker before. And, and uh, you'll see, oh, it's, it's actually not super easy to explain 
uh, even really simple things. And if you if you give yourself a, a little mental workout and try to describe some real simple tasks that way, uh, then you're ready to talk to the lawyer because the, the meter starts running whether you're ready or not. And so you really want to kind of have your, your act together um, when you when you start talking so that you say, OK, here's everything I have. Here's what's going on. Here's here's what's unique about it, because that's, you know, one of the things that needs to stand out. And the one thing they tell you about patents that is is kind of true is um, you're, you most people think about it in terms of protecting my turf or something like that. You really creating a public record of how to do or make the thing that you're that you're doing or making. And it should be reproducible from the patent. The patent is almost a recipe or an instruction manual for creating the thing. Um, and so my experience was was pretty unique because we went through all that and worked with a, a, a lawyer and uh, put together what what I thought was pretty good. But there's a lot of sacred cows in the whole patent thing. Like, oh, you got to do, you got to do this and you got to do that. And then you see patents that come through that like clearly somebody doodled the drawings themselves and everything else. And, you know, I went, I remember going through a process where like the drawings had to be just this way and just that way. And then I wasn't happy with the drawings anyway when, when they were done. It's like, you know, there's always something to obsess about when something means that much to you. And I'm like, that could have looked this way and that could have looked that way. And so, um, you know, the process was really interesting. And then there is a kind of back and forth. And the one thing that blindsided me that was that was fascinating was if you do your due diligence and you look at prior art that's out there and you study what's come before and you really look at all of that, um, which I recommend before attempting to do anything, because there's a good chance it's been done before anyway. If you look at all that stuff, you get this mindset where like, you know, all the other, it's like, if you're a professional athlete, like, you know, all the other professional athletes that would, you know, be competitors or like, you know, how they, how, if you race, you know, how they ride, you know, all, everything about, well, you kind of know all these other characteristics of suspension systems. What I didn't count on is the people at the patent office reviewing this stuff. They have no point of entry for any of that. Like they don't know any of that. So the, th the funny thing is I had somebody contact me during the review process and they, they basically said, okay, well, um, we can give you these claims. Um, th these are all yours. We can do this, but we can't give you this and this and this and this because there's prior art. And I'm like, oh, you know, and I assumed it was a research thing, right? Like, I just missed it. It's out there. You know, somebody did it in the 20s. They There's some characteristic that they had and I just did, you know, or some weird thing that's been uh, was created and somebody's still using or something. And it turns out, no, it was just they had no idea. Like, they had no context whatsoever. So, some of the stuff that they thought was uh, prior art was like, a unified rear triangle bike, you know, where the drivetrain is attached to the swing arm. It's like nothing even close. It was as far, far away, not even in the same category. And uh, and eventually all the claims were, were granted uh, once they, they said, OK, well, you know, here's why that's not really working. And so 
given an opportunity to clean some things up, I did. But that really goes back to reinforce what I'd said earlier. You, you really have to be able to describe it as if you're describing it to somebody who, who knows nothing, nothing about the art, nothing about uh, the industry, nothing about uh, bicycles or what you're trying to do, whatever it is. It, it should be clear to uh in some ways, nobody, because it's legalese, but, but at least your concept, before they do that to it, your concept should be super clear. You know, you should be able to explain it to that proverbial alien visiting from another planet or just to be able to explain it to, to a, a small child who's just digging it, you know, like, hey, that's cool. How's that machine work? Well, well, let me tell you, you know, if you can't explain it relatively easily, then it's, it's going to be a, a long trip to the patent. And what year are we talking here? Years? What, what era are we at for this stage of things uh we're we're in 2007 when i applied for it and then it was actually granted in 2010 so that was uh yeah yeah there was a lot going on at the time and then that was right around the time that i uh moved away from from uh the bike the online bike shop that ran for for 15 years and so cool stuff was starting to happen um the original uh yeti switch had come out and that wasn't wasn't a patent issue or anything but it, it was the first thing sort of swimming in the same swimming pool like it, it was it had this there, there was dna that it shared with kind of what i had going on and so that was a real wake-up call to me where it's like I, I had patented this suspension system and i never did anything with it i was just busy with the the e-commerce side of my life and and running the business and everything and uh that was uh both inspirational and a wake-up call to see some of these designs start to uh, look similar to to what I what I was doing. It was like you know uh, I got to get I got to get my act together. I got to build some proof of concept frames. And I got to see if these things work. And uh, so it was around 2010 2011 that uh, a bunch of things happened. I actually relocated uh, from the east coast out to the west coast um, and started. Uh, was still working in e-commerce in general in the bike industry, uh, moved out to the West Coast to uh, to the Portland area to work for another company and do some stuff. But I, I also stepped up my game on the uh, suspension side, just, uh, you know, with the uh, with, with the side hustle, uh, burning the midnight oil thing to, to try to make something happen. So that was right around 2010 through 2011. We started to see a move toward making some sample frames. Yeah. And once again, I think that's, Nice transition into what I was going to ask next of just you start building some sample frames and that's obviously a whole new can of worms beyond just doing the suspension layout in 2D. And uh, you've already mentioned that you don't have any particular engineering background or anything like that. So what did it look like trying to get a whole frame design built rather than just the more conceptual suspension layout part of the whole program? Yeah, the the first route, I I worked with a friend who had connections with factories in Taiwan and everything, and, and it was just like, well, let, let's let's try to get some samples built, and um, this gets uh, super duper into the weeds in terms of the the bike business and stuff like that. But I've, I've found people seem to find this really interesting too. So hopefully, hopefully, uh, your listeners will will take something from it, but. Um, the bike industry is is obviously uh, a lot of the manufacturing takes place in Taiwan and China 
in particular, it's expanding out into to Vietnam and, and Cambodia and some other places. But uh, Asia is a huge epicenter and entire uh, cities are built for the benefit of creating bicycles. And so I had I had a friend who could pl- help get some frames plugged into that system. And you're almost relying on what well, not almost you are relying on this established infrastructure. So you, you have all these uh uh, all these basic bicycle platforms into which uh, you're just plugging your your kinematics. So there's still a lot of custom machining and everything that had to happen to make these sample frames. But uh, we ended up working with a factory that, you know, you just you grab your pre-bent down tube that, that is almost ready to go. And so you can grab some of these off the rack pieces and it, nothing fancy and it didn't need to be, um, you know, straight gauge, heavy tubing and everything just for these sample products. But um and it's 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 costly because you're only making a couple and everything, but it would seem to be a, a reasonable expense to go after to be able to um, to be able to have these little proof of concept things. And um, and once I had the the proof of concept uh, bikes, that really helped because to go through the refinement process of uh, okay, it's it's it it's almost there. It has merit. You know, it, it does kind of work as intended. Um, that, that's both a really, really emotional, uh, journey. Cause it's one thing to do all this stuff on paper and be like, yeah, I'm a suspension designer. I designed this thing. And then when you have the physical product and you, you, you push a bottom bracket, uh, into it. And, uh, cause for some reason, the first one I ever did, I did a press fit bottom bracket. I'm, I'm sorry to everybody, including myself. I, I don't know why the very first sample one, that was the only one I went back to right back to threaded, but you know, you, you put this bike together and you go ride it and to ride something that you you designed when that isn't something that you you do and it wasn't my background you know so i had no training to uh, prepare myself emotionally for that but it's pretty overwhelming to throw a leg over it and go ride it out of the garage and and see whether it works and um i was so overwhelmed that the the first one i i literally just turned around and came back in the house and like took a nap because it was it was just too much like i and i convinced myself in uh just a trip uh down the driveway and out into the uh out into the cul-de-sac and and uh turn around head back that uh it didn't work i was a total failure and it was a terrible idea and i should never have done it and uh and I, and, and as said, I just kind of like, okay, I'm just tapped out. I, I'm, I'm going to take a nap and I'll, I'll think about this when, when I wake up. And then only after getting back on it and riding it around some, when I was working at a, at a, uh, big, uh, online, uh, bike shop here in the Pacific Northwest. I, and I took the thing into work and, uh, and and then some of the crew that I worked with, uh, they were lighter, a lot lighter riders than I was uh, at the time. They hopped on and they, like, man, this thing pedals really well. And I'm like, does it? Okay, because at that point, I'm I'm just I, I I'm upside down. I don't know where I am with with this thing. You know, I definitely need some help from friends and need some feedback. And they were like, yeah. And so what I realized was that the first design was just uh, all leverage ratioed out. Like it was starting today, it would almost be acceptable, but it was starting like 3.8 or 4, you know, 4.0 down to like two 
leverage ratios, which is a pretty extreme progression. Uh, if anybody's not familiar with it, it was just a really, really extreme uh, progression, like a 50% progression or something. And, uh, and so it was really soft at the beginning and really firm at the end. And I was, uh, I was too heavy. It was in order to get it, uh, functional for me, I was basically sitting down into the travel too much, but for them, they could kind of, it was in a better range and they were like, this thing climbs fantastic and it can do this and it could do that. And I'm like, okay. So I kind of reassessed the situation from there and moved on to, uh, the actual, I don't want to call them production, but like the finished versions of the first generation. And then it's just a process of solving a million little problems. You know, even with the factory, they, they, they ship it over and you go to put a SRAM carbon crank set on it and it hits the chain stay and you have to explain, you know, that because they did it for Shimano drawings the way most people do. And you have to be willing to tolerate, not just tolerate, like kind of love that process of like endless problem solving with all that stuff. So props to a lot of like engineers and product managers. I know a lot of them out there in the bike industry. And that that's the unglamorous part of the job that a lot of people don't see is just keeping up with, uh, most of us know standards like, oh my gosh, a new this stand, new axle standard, new bottom bracket standard. But keeping up with the tiny little micro standards that happen where, oh, everybody has always built around this convention and now somebody's doing a, a crank arm that has a larger overall rotational envelope or something and you got to deal with that. Like, you're heroes, man. That stuff is is endless and to to iron it all out is, is wild. And... Um, and it involves a lot of communication and vigilance and stuff like that. So that process was cool, kind of kind of working through that. And you, you have to kind of even love that that nasty business of sorting out those details and be really detail oriented. And um, I went through that process and that the process that I developed for communicating the issues is what I'm still using today. And it wouldn't ministry wouldn't have been possible without that, where you're able to uh, I, I use graphics a lot where I will just explain anything that needs to change in a a real simple graphic format. Like I've literally used the like uh, red Ghostbusters anti-symbol through something like this bad and then the green check mark this good, you know, and it's like, OK, this can't be here. This has to be there. And you 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 kind of design these information packets that, that, that I've gotten pretty good at des- uh, developing in such a way that it's really simple to understand what needs to change and evolve with the mechanics of, of the, the design. And that happened way back then. We kind of worked out the bugs and then we had these uh, sort of rideable samples. And from there, that led to uh, somebody at Jameis wrote it and really liked it. And um, and and, and uh, they wanted to license it. And so it took on this this little mini life of its own that uh, became this tiny business, the little suspension business where somebody was now licensing it and I was interested in developing it. And then that was really the foundation on which uh, ministries built. Mm -hmm. And when you kicked off that first step of, well, not first step, but first production-ish step of getting those samples built, was it sort of your goal at that time to develop the platform get the kinks ironed out and then license it out as you did with Jameis? Or were you at that point already eyeing up maybe starting a company yourself or 
what was the thought process about that side of things? Yeah, I think it was both. I think the one thing that that um, prior to starting my, my e-commerce company in, in 97, I didn't have any business background. So I wasn't one of these like, you know, galaxy brain thinkers where it was like, I'll do this and then that'll pay for that. And then, you know, because I calculated the price, rising price of coffee beans, uh, carry the one and I make $2.5 billion. It wasn't nearly like that, but it was, I, I like to always do things with, uh, that have baked in plan A and plan B. And so plan A is usually, you know, some grand design where it's like, okay, cool. I, I end up with a bike company. That would be so awesome. That's kind of a dream. That would be great. And that's, that's really cool. But plan B is like, yeah, but can you cover your expenses if plan A is, doesn't really pan out. And so I I really kind of went into it with both. Um, you know, right from the start, I was thinking if this is going to work, other people might be interested in it. And I'm certainly not going to turn that down. You know, if there's a chance to find some partners who would want to uh, develop something with it, um, let, let's do that. And um, and that was partially because my attention was divided too. Like you have to pretty much be all in on a bicycle brand. You know, starting a, starting a company and really developing a product as as I've had reinforced uh, to me recently. Uh, you really kind of got to be all in and. Um, I wasn't quite ready to take that leap. So developing the product as a, as a kind of side hustle and, and sort of under cover of darkness, the licensing made more sense because that was a kind of manageable uh, business, you know, the venture that you could do where um, there's development and there's obligations. And in my case, there's, there's always a little bit of marketing stuff. You, you got to kind of show up at, a, at events. I know when Jameis launched the bikes, I you know would be at Sea Otter and, and be talking to people and doing some stuff. And um, so there's some obligations there, but for the most part, uh, that's a much more reserved role uh, in the background than, you know, the all hands on, uh, endless work of, of kind of trying to bring your own branded product to market. Yeah, for sure. And I guess apart from the initial foibles with the leverage ratio, leverage curve that you described. And I mean, I guess I'm imagining that you're talking about having this paired with a circa 2010 (laughs) air shock with some pretty odd spring curves happening. Yeah, yeah, air can like a couple couple millimeters wider than the average pencil. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. So it does check out that that might not have lined up and meshed quite as well as one might have hoped for. But uh, that kink, notwithstanding, I mean, in your experience of sort of doing this first test ride and just feeling like the whole project had been a failure, sounds as you said, kind of a tough emotional thing to overcome but once you sort of got past that initial hit of disappointment and got some other folks on it and started getting some better feedback where did you go with the design from there and how much did you wind up changing between that first kind of sample and where Jameis wound up with it on their initial run of bikes um, it, it actually stayed really similar in that case. I mean, we had to, to refine cause we had to do variations. You know, they wanted a, a, a one sixty uh, 27, five bike and they wanted a one thirty uh, 29 er And so at that point you really, that becomes your crash course in, um, 
that second step when when you're creating a, a, a des- when you're designing something. You know, it's one thing to design something you're like there you go, I made it. It's a suspension system for a bicycle that can only ever be 135 millimeters of travel and blah blah blah. And it's like when you actually have to design a product for people where they have their own demands and they're like, okay, it's got to do this and it's got to do that. Um, to, to be perfectly honest, and, and um, Sal and the guys at Jameis, if you're listening, no, no, ignore this part. I had it all under control right from the start. But when they say, hey, okay, now we need it to be 160, we need it to be this, we need it to be that. I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, I, it could be anything. We could make a downhill bike with this. And I'm thinking, man, I, I, I hope I can. I, I hope that's that's really true. You don't really know where those boundaries are. You know, anytime you're dealing with the kinematics and all those numbers moving around, um, it stands the reason that you could create, you know, anything and you could do this, you could do that. But at the time, uh, there is always that leap where you're like, yeah, yeah, sure, I got this. And you're like, yeah, I, I let's see if that actually works. And so happily, it turns out it did. And um, in fact, it's a pretty robust uh, suspension design in that, like, you can mess with uh, rear center chainstay length. You know, you could go with longer chainstays. You can do, you can, it can accommodate a lot without uh, going completely uh, off the charts. You know, uh, it, it's pretty tolerant of a lot of variables. And so that's one of the things that I've, push the boundaries more and more and explored stuff. And, you know, there's stuff on my computer that's really crazy. But to kind of see what you could do. So that was really the heart of that stage of things was refining and delivering more specific products for now my customer. Like, okay, what what do they need and what how can we make it work? And um, but in essence, the design had had stayed the same. And the the, the irony is, is that the core patented suspension design that I have lends itself really well to uh, a progression rate that's kind of popular these days that about 30% progression. And a lot of what I was banging my head against in the early days was trying to get rid of that. And and now it's it's like generally acceptable, but I was trying to like bring it all the way down to like, you know, flat or 15 or you know just like very little progression because as 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 you said at the time we're dealing with air shocks that were uh very sort of uh low volume high pressure so you have these tiny little air shocks that ramp up um for anybody that doesn't know generally if you if you look at an air shock the bigger it looks the more it acts like a coil spring versus an air shock it's like a super cheat code there for reading those things so something like a like a big fat Fox X2, Float X2 is uh, is going to behave uh, more linearly or more like a coil spring. But back in the day, there were a lot of these skinny little air shocks and they were designed to be progressive. So uh, air, the more you squish it, the more it don't like getting squished. And so uh, you would design your suspension systems around these, these really progressive air shocks uh, and you would almost need to make your suspension systems a little more linear. But these days with the way that air shocks have evolved and the way they're mimicking uh, coil springs, which are not as progressive, you can design suspension systems that are quite uh, progressive. And so um, a lot of the hard work in the early days with the Jameis designs, it was really a matter of accommodating uh, the tech at the time. And then making a bike that was just, you know, really fun to ride for a wide range of, of, of people. Right. And 
um, I think what you've said about just shock technology evolving and in many ways making a nicely ironed out suspension system a good bit easier is uh, certainly checks out. So, but you know, we're by the time you're getting some Jameis production bikes out the door, what year have we arrived at now? Oh, so we would be um, all the way up into, uh, boy, that one's, we're probably 2016, mm-hmm. 2000, you know, 15, 16, uh, thereabouts. Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, that's probably, you know, a couple years on from the whole uh, epicenter of everything with the 2011 or so patent. So, we're probably th- three, four years in. Right, okay. And so... At that point, um, you've got things up and running. Jameis is building bikes with your suspension. Uh, where did you kind of go from there? Because there's still some years in the gap between that and <laughs> yeah. ministry surfacing. So, <laughs> were, yeah, what was kind of the stuff going on behind the scenes for that era? Yeah, so not uh, can't can't be swept under the rug that there there's been day jobs this whole time, and uh, the and the day jobs aren't uh, unrelated. Um, you know, kind of been in the bike industry for a long time anyway. I've sort of had a couple different personalities simultaneously in the bike industry for quite some time, and so uh, it can't go without saying that during this whole phase of things, I'm actually running marketing for Stan Snow Tubes. So I'm kind of the, the the go-to guy and I ended up building a team there and kind of still super proud of what I was able to build within the company and, and love those guys. It was, a, it was a good time. But that has me uh, preoccupied. Um, so I'm building booths for trade show, you know, designing booths for trade shows and, and setting up uh, ads and doing ad buys and working with all the sponsored athletes. So there's not really a lot of dull moments uh, while all this is going on too. And there's a couple, you know, freaky trade events where I'm at Sea Otter and I'm like, uh, hey, asking the president of Stan Snow Tubes, who's a super awesome guy named Mike. And I'm like, hey, Mike, uh, I'm going to take lunch over at the Jameis thing. And then it ends up being like, hey, we're recording a video. Can I record the video behind the Stan's van? And, uh, you know, you just so you kind of running all over the place doing all this stuff. And uh, so that was uh, that had me, you know, quite, quite busy at the time. So in addition to the suspension stuff, uh, th- there's a, you know, a 99.8% of my time, uh, day job going on. And so, uh, that actually went on up until, uh, this past, uh, April, uh, 2022 when I decided, um, you know, it's been a whole bunch of years since I started a business and, and, got in my own trouble and I'm just going to go all in and, uh, and I'm going to, I think I, I made that decision prior to having any names worked out or anything like that, but I'm going to, I'm going to start a, a brand based on the suspension design and, um, it's going to go back to the, uh, back, back to the roots of the, of the patent, um, simplify things, uh, the much more progressive, uh, leverage, uh, rate ratio. And, um, and we're going to see what kind of bike we could design. And I'm going to do it all as a vehicle for finding new ways to, to do things because um, the conventional paths of just trying to start a bike company uh, with traditional manufacturing and everything 
Um, a, it's really difficult, requires a ton of upfront cash, and it's not incremental. You can't like, you, you can't piss around at it. You got to just go all in and and commit to these these huge factory runs and stuff like that. So it's a good thing to do if you have a lot of money to get rid of that you want to make go away and, and then spin the wheel and hope. But it also wasn't very interesting to me because the best you could do would be make yet another carbon frame or yet another uh, welded aluminum frame that was kind of similar to a lot of the other stuff that's out there. And I'm really interested in finding uh, completely new ways to, to do stuff. So I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of people um, with my time at stands and everything. So to, to, to get to know the Athertons a little bit and see what they're doing with their additive and carbon tubing manufacturing and many of the people that you've you've talked to david and you know interviewed and and there's a lot of people doing really cool things and what i wanted really was a a a business that was a vehicle to explore doing really cool things or like making things in in interesting ways and that's kind of what brought me up to uh to to ministry right and certainly see that as a commendable goal so with that in mind where did you start yeah, so that whole thing started with um, looking at unconventional ways to make the bikes and looking at uh, business models that would kind of be halfway between the small frame builder and uh, actual companies churning out a bunch of frames. You know, the, 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 I, my, my passion is really more aligned with the small frame builder um, I love that mentality. I, I love everything about it. But I used to think, and, and, and some of them are very prolific, you know, and, and, and do turn out a lot of frames. But um, it, I, it's it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do in terms of building something. I wanted to build something that if there was interest, uh, it, it could scale a little more efficiently. And it wasn't just 100% artisanal. It had some sort of technology involved that would uh, allow the production to scale. And then on top of it, the nature of the product that I'm building required a little different way of doing things because you have very precise pivot locations and everything that you need to hold. And you have things that traditionally are more challenging for complex uh, uh, carbon shapes to build up or uh, cut and miter. Uh, tubing to build up and everything. So if you were to take the design that I have now that we're CNC machining and you were to hand it to a frame builder and say, make this, they, they, you know, they would come back to you and say, well, can you make me all these CNC machined pieces that position everything that I need to do? And essentially, I just said, well, yeah, I'll just I'm CNC machining so much stuff. Why don't I just make the whole damn frame? And, uh, and, and, and that's kind of where it evolved because it was like, okay, well, you got to machine a lot of stuff if you if you want to make these, okay? Um, and that could be additive manufacturing, or it could be uh, welding tubes to little pivot locations and stuff, or whatever it is. But you have to do all this fabrication work to make this full suspension design. Um, so, okay, there's a bunch of machining that's going to be involved. So then I looked at, okay, well, can I join tubes, you know, similar to what the Athertons or Bastion down in Australia or something, you know, should, should I go that route and just join tubes? There's some people doing really cool, interesting things with that. 
and then you look at that and like, okay, well, there's all this machining over here and all that machining over there. And then there's, there's this, and it's like, what I'm really interested in is a manufacturing method that, uh, in in e-commerce there's this term headless where it's like you can kind of move your your company pieces around and they're not like uh built on one platform you know you can do shopify over here but you got this over there and i kind of want the manufacturing equivalent of that like i got a digital file um that can move around these frames can be machined at point a or they can be machined at point b Everything stays really precise because it's all written right into the spec of the uh, file that gets sent. You know, you're recreating the same precise measurements over and over and over again. And there's one thing that machining does really well, and that's precision. And so you get that precision. You don't have to worry about misalignments. You don't have to worry about some of these other things. So from a production standpoint, it began to, it seems crazy. And everybody assumes that you did it as this stunt to be cool. You know, like, oh, well, you you could have made normal frames. And so you made these like CNC machine frames because what, you like some rich dude has a lot of money you want to get rid No, it's like a way more economical, small scale way to make a really high quality product. Um, you can make really low quality products uh, in a bunch of different ways, but it's this is a really effective way to make a high quality product that is um can start small but could scale uh is highly repeatable and lets you uh develop a methodology that's really really agile and flexible so i can i can move the production of these things around i can uh shift things i can control volume a lot and and really it's just an exercise in that see where we are you know make a bitchin product but see where we are uh in terms of manufacturing and make a product that can evolve as manufacturing evolves because it really is just design driven yeah that's very interesting but it does make sense and especially kind of some of the stuff you said about being able to have the design evolve and not be locked into an enormous production run or a buy of tooling that you then are committed to that you can't move things around or adapt it. But I am curious to hear some more about how you, I guess, both went about evaluating the various ways that you could go about making a frame. And then once you landed on this machined aluminum solution, I mean, it's one thing to say that you're going to go machine yourself a bike, but there's still a whole lot of engineering that has to go into making that happen, even if you're not also building tooling and yeah. having someone miter tubes and weld the whole thing or make it out of carbon or whatever. Uh, and so how did all that come together for you? And what was the approach there? That was a process of knowing uh, when to call in help. And um, I, I'm, I'm sometimes really bad at that. You know, I had no business really even doing the kinematics in the first place, but I just kept at it until I figured it out. And I, and I, you know, I, I built the company website and do all this stuff. And I, I tend to always do take this stupid route where I just try to do everything myself. And, and part, and I'm at a stage in my life, uh, I'm like a million years old at this point. And so I'm at a stage in my life where I'm trying really hard not to be that person who just tries to do everything himself. Like I, I try to reach out and find help. So in this case, I began looking at engineers that I could work with and I consider myself really fortunate to have found 
uh, Jordan from Serta Design, UK-based uh, design uh, firm, engineer, and uh, to partner with me and, and work really closely uh, back and forth on getting the shapes together, getting the design together. And what I, I knew what I, I know what I wanted the bike to look like. Um, I know how I want the bike to ride, but getting somebody with the, the experience to FEA, uh, analyze everything to do all the surfaces, to, to, to create the shapes and figure everything out. We, we just kind of went head down, worked together for, um, uh, about a year solid, just figuring everything out, how, how it's, it's going to be and how it's going to go together because the manufacturing method is uh, pretty unique. And, um, and so that, that the key to that was really, uh, again, kind of almost going back to the patent stuff, having a pretty clear vision of what you want. You know, you, you just have to worry about maintaining the vision, you know, getting clear with yourself of what that vision is. And, and then you can work with people because then, you have the ability when, when your vision's clear, you have the ability to say, no, man, let's stick with plan A, you know, let's, let's do it this way. And, 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 uh, I think a lot of times people are afraid to reach out and get help with different things because they're afraid that, that their vision get diluted or things that get changed. And if you're real clear with where you want things to be, you can, you can really take advantage of some, some brilliant people and working with Jordan has been fantastic. So that really moved everything along and, um, and start started the process and I talked with other engineers and looked at different ways to do things and, and tried to to get advice on on everything but really things clicked when uh, when Serta got involved and we were able to to really mm-hmm. advance the project and by the time that you went to Serta and Jordan had you settled on going down the machined route at that stage or were you still options open and they were the ones to help clarify that yeah, that's that's a fantastic question. We kind of worked it out together. I was committed to something uh, unconventional. I knew I wasn't going to do the whole, I just need you to, you know, create a, a miter cut frame or do a carbon surface. Uh, I knew it was going to be something different, but I was still, when, when we first started talking, I was really thinking that it would still be a tube and lug kind of uh, like a like an Atherton style bonded tube and lug construction. And um really in the process of, of working through that and looking what that would uh, looking at what that would actually look like. Um, it was going to be more all aluminum versus the, the, the carbon and aluminum and things. But, but in the process of looking at what it would look like, um, it started to become clear. And, and mind you, to, to the listeners, I should mention, I'm doing this massive aluminum innovative bicycle project when aluminum is uh, aluminum is itself at like record high prices you know like if you wanted to 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 time this any worse it would almost be impossible so so i'm i'm doing all this stuff but i'm getting pricing for the individual lugs you know those junction points if you were to plug tubes into them uh i'm getting prices for these individual pieces and uh the the machining is quite high and everything all the pricing is quite high and i'm starting to notice it, it's 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 hard to to articulate this, but you're you're literally uh, quoting these these things, and there's like online tools you can use to quote your aluminum pieces and stuff. And you're realizing, well, it's not really that much more if it's bigger, and it's not really that much more if it's shaped this way. And then so <laughs> there's your slippery slope, and you end up saying, you know what? Yeah, let's just let's just machine the whole damn thing because what you take out of the equation is. Uh, 
is uh, is risk. You know, all the alignment issues and everything that can go wrong, you remove from the equation when, particularly that front triangle, when you just have two clamshell halves, two, two hollow, immovable 70-75 slabs of aluminum that are going to go together to create that piece, your precision is baked in. So your re- repeatability it becomes something that each one you make is really, really consistent because all your pivot points, all your 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 key points on the on the uh, on the piece are fixed and uh, fixed with a really high degree of precision. So that that it just grew. It grew from individual little pieces of aluminum to bigger, bigger, bigger. All right, let's just mm-hmm. let's just do the whole thing and. I guess, I mean, one thing that I still find really interesting about this is that, I mean, you're obviously right that CNC machining's a very good way to make things quite precisely in general, but I have to imagine that machining a full clamshell for a front triangle is still a kind of complicated thing because you've got this giant block of aluminum that you're starting from, but by the time that you carved most of it away and have this very thin-walled clamshell structure of the front triangle half. It's lost a ton of stiffness. You've got some potential for things warping just due to internal stresses in the original block of aluminum you're starting from. You've got this pretty thin thing that's, I would imagine, kind of prone to chattering and vibrating as you're doing the ladder steps of the machining. How did you kind of go about finding someone who was actually able to take this on and do it well it it wasn't super easy uh in fact because it is uh there there are some people who who have this stuff completely dialed and and there are patents out there on you know really radical cool ways to machine aluminum and everything um this is what we're doing is a relatively simple process in comparison but uh, I had plenty of people just say, nah, nah, we're, you know, n- no, like we, we don't, we don't want to try to machine that. And I, I ended up at a, at a, uh, at a factory in Asia through a guy who said, Hey, I, I know a guy who, who can, who can do this, who can, who can hook this up. And, and I got introduced to, to Martin, this guy I've been working with, uh, who's again, what he has in common with Jordan phenomenal communication and when you're building a team you know whatever your business is if you can just find some key people that can communicate not just communicate well in general but communicate well with you um that's that's really key like without that you can't do anything and so this little mini freelance team that i've built uh actually communicates particularly well and I'm able to articulate, okay, it's one thing to just send a file. Can you make this? Can you, you know, what, what's what's the challenges? But it's another thing to say, okay, can you make this? Here's what to watch out for. How are you going to get around that? Can you do this? Can you do that? And so exactly what you mentioned with the chatter and everything. I mean, you're making this shell, right? Like it's a, it's a thin aluminum shell. And there are a lot of challenges to doing that. And, and, and I don't even necessarily... Uh, it, it's it's pretty cool. You can repurpose a lot a lot of that aluminum that gets carved away and everything. But 
I'm just really into exploring new ways to manufacture things and how we're doing it now might not be the way that, that we do it five years down the road, but it has its own set of challenges. And what you described is exactly it. Like you're making this thin walled creation and it's kind of sim more similar to carbon fiber in a way because you can control the wall thicknesses and everything. Like you're, you're really giving this thing shape, but that chatter and that ability to keep everything fixed is the real challenge. And I, I found out who was doing a lot of machine work for, for other people in the bicycle industry. And I made a lot of calls and talked to a lot of people. And uh, yeah, a lot of people just said, nah, like that's, that's, it's, it's too hard to make. It's just, you know, I don't know how we would keep it from chattering and doing all this stuff. And, um, and, 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 and Martin said, yeah, I, I can, I, I, I got guys, I can make that. And um, the way that they do do it is that um, they actually uh, have a, a kind of putty that goes into it. So you create, you create half, you, you carve half, and then you essentially make it another solid object again. And then when you do the machining, all the precision is still there. You're not getting the chatter. You've essentially created another solid block and then the, that all uh, uh, gets removed. And so it it lets us get down to, you know, sub two millimeter where we need to uh, sections and things like that. And the level of precision, uh, I mean, mind you, I'm doing all this and I'm thinking this is never going to work. You, you know, like I'm this far along and I'm thinking this is just completely batshit crazy. I'm going to get this stuff. None of this stuff is going to is going to work. Um, and you learn a lot as you go and where I am right now in the process. And I've been very transparent. Anybody who follows me on social media and stuff like that. I'm like, well, here's, you know, here's kind of what I screwed up today. And, and I, 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 you know, I just, it's like that that's part of the process. Um, and it is this exploration to develop things in, in this new way. And I think sometimes when you make, you set out to make products, the conventional way, most people are so used to being sold stuff and kind of like, marketed at and everything and it's like my main interest here is figuring out new ways to to make bicycle frames uh really high precision cool bicycle frames that look good and work well and that's really what i'm exploring here and there is this one particular product but i don't it would be great to sell them it would be cool if people like them but this isn't a uh this isn't a, I, I, I got to produce all these things and I got to sell them and I got to do that. Like I'm in this for the long game. I'm in this for learning and for developing these things. And so with that in mind, I, I, I gave myself the freedom to, to just experiment like, okay, what's going to happen? And I got the, the first pieces and you, you learn so much. Um, that part of it, the part that you would think would be the absolute most challenging part. Now th this could all change certainly, uh, but it, that hasn't been the challenge. Like they fit together so well. There's giant perimeter lap joints that go around this whole thing. So essentially, you're almost snapping this big Lego together. You know, you you have these these pieces that interlock um, to to receive one another, and that part has worked really well. Uh, right from day one. Plenty of other things, you know, you're going to have all kinds of little things. Okay, this doesn't work and that doesn't work. But the part that seems really challenging, I mean, you went right to it. You would think that is like the the big challenging thing. Um, it turns out that's not that's not too bad. That, that part's done. And then 
I just am giving myself the freedom to enjoy this whole process because learning stuff is is really cool. And the last time I built a business, I didn't really take time to appreciate anything that was going on. It was just, you know, one fire putting out after another, just running around constantly. And this time around, I'm like, well, let's just at least stop and look around all the time and say, okay, you know, this this is fascinating. And one of the things that's fascinating is when when you machine with that degree of tolerance, you can make these incredibly precise pieces that interlock and fit together uh, in really precise ways. It lets you create the same product over and over again with really high precision and repeatability. Um, that That's all worked out to be really cool. And then the details are like, you know... You, <laughs> You you land that enormous plane, right? Like these huge front triangle pieces are interlocking perfectly and everything. And it's like, guys, you sent like the wrong file for this one little bolt. You know, you know, this is what I'm talking about now. With, with I think I just uh, posted uh, something recently where it's like, I, I can't send these things off for lab testing yet because I'm minus like a couple tiny little custom bolts, you know, for the suspension pins that go, the, the shafts that go through everything. And so it's always, it's that stuff that sneaks around and gets you, you know, you plan for like the big massive crushing failures of like, oh, this super complex piece doesn't work. Well, where I am right now, the super complex stuff is all working. It's the little details that have to also work for this to, to, to come together. This is, I think, kind of a mantra that we've heard repeatedly from people going through the same process as you that like the getting what seems like it ought to be 90% of the way there is way less than 90% of the work. And it's those little final details, finishing things off that <laughs> it's just death by a thousand cuts with those. And I mean, we've talked yeah, a whole lot about yeah. the design process and the fact that it's a machined aluminum frame with a bond clamshell and all the rest, but haven't actually done too much about the particulars of the bike itself. So why don't you take us through all that stuff? Yeah, so what we created is a uh, 7075 T6 aluminum CNC machine. It's it's currently 100% 7075 aluminum uh, frame. Uh, the, the, the first thing we created here, named the company ministry based on my, my, my faith in bicycles as uh, one cure for humanity's ills um, and, uh, and, and keeping with the... Uh, uh, the quasi-religious theme there. The Psalm 150 is the first product, and uh, I have had people ask me what the what the uh, relevance of the biblical uh, uh, references to that particular psalm. It's got 150 millimeters of travel, folks. Like bicycles are my religion. I'm I'm doing it because it's got 150 millimeters of travel. So. Because I think if you refer to that actual uh, verse in the Bible, it, it, it's not real consequential in the world of bicycling. Uh, so. It's 150 millimeters rear travel for a 160 or 170 millimeter front fork. Um, there's currently uh, the one frame size that has a 480 or 490 millimeter reach. Uh, it's got a, a reach adjustment uh, built into it, uh, a, a concentric uh, cup that you can flip back and forth. Um, it has uh, the stock uh, chainstay length is 435 millimeters, but we have the drawings done for 445 millimeter chainstays. And uh, the idea is that you have something that's somewhat tunable and, and modular. So the replaceable dropouts, it's using a SRAM UDH, universal derailleur hanger, but with the dropouts being adjustable, it gives us 
a lot of room down the road to evolve and do some different things with the same platform. And similarly with the adjustable head tube, uh, it lets us change not just the reach of the bike, but the wheelbase of the bike to be able to do some different things. So you kind of want to lean into some of the advantages that the manufacturing method give you. And with that precision, you can do some of this stuff with uh, adjustability and, and precision and uh, adjustable cups and things like that. So 29er, dedicated 29er right now, 150 millimeters rear travel, uh, 160 or 170 millimeter uh, front uh, travel. The current numbers are, uh, it's a, a 78 degree seat tube angle. Uh, it's a 65 degree uh, head tube angle with the uh, uh, smaller fork. It's about 64 and a half with the 170. Um, so it's, it's decidedly uh, trail, you know, like, like aggressive trail bike. Uh, you, could, you, could, you could enduro, you could rally the thing a little bit, um, but it's really, uh, it, it's really made for, for going up and going down, uh, getting down all over. Right on. And I mean, seems like a pretty sensible place to start kind of middle of the spectrum, longest travel trail bike kind of thing covers a whole lot of bases and it's the right sort of bike for a lot of folks. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think everybody kind of makes the bike. Uh, if you look at if any bike brand that has like a personality behind it, usually the bike that they're pushing the most or, you know, it's it's the bike that that person wants to ride and wants to own. And and I, the secret weapon that I have is my own uh, terrifyingly effective incompetence on a bicycle. Like, so I just want to make a bike that made me faster and uh, and, and made me more comfortable uh riding and and that's really the goal so uh, unlike a lot of people i don't come from a world cup racing background i don't come for that i'm just a schmuck who's super uncoordinated on a bicycle and i need a bike that is really really good to 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 be even remotely competent and so that's what i set out to make and and it it uh it makes me a better rider and that's my my original test criteria uh can i do something i couldn't do before and if I could do it before, can I do it faster or more easily? And uh, that's been the wildest thing. I've gotten a little bit uh, used to the big scary things to the point where, you know, I mentioned the first time riding the suspension system so many years ago and what, what an emotional thing that was. And then this time around, I don't know whether I've just grown used to doing crazy things or what, but I mean, I get these things, I take delivery, I bond them together uh, in my garage uh, I jump on the bike and I just go ride it. And I'm like, this is, uh, I didn't really even stop to think like I CNC machined these frames. I, I bonded them together and I'm out riding them. Um, that's nuts. Like what the hell are you doing? It, I just sort of did it. And the first ride, I didn't have all the right small parts. So I told myself, I'm just going to be on the pavement and I can't, I can't really stress it because I don't even have all the right spacers in the suspension. Like I'm, I'm clanking around out there and I ended up, uh, coming across this really, really steep. It's, it's technically paved, but it's, it's ludicrous. It's moss covered like 30 degree slope. And I'm like, uh, I've, I've never made it up, but on the other bike, it's slimy and it's, it's almost, it's that like Pacific Northwest, uh, jogging trail. That's much worse than dirt. Like I, it's slipperier than dirt any day. Like I'll, I'll take the, the roots and I, uh, I started up it and, uh, with the angles and everything on the bike, it's so much easier to, to, to climb. And I just truck right up this thing and I'm thinking halfway up it, you know, I'm having to, to get out of the saddle cause it's, it's super gnarly slope. And, I, and I'm thinking, 
this is so stupid. Like this is putting so much more stress into the whole bike for the first ride ever than if I just jumped it off something, you know, right, right, right from the start, you know, I'm torquing the hell out of this thing. And, uh, and then there was that brief moment of what the hell are you doing? And then I was like, oh, well, I'm just doing it. And I kind of never, never looked back. So, uh, after that, I, I did get the necessary parts, got really confident in it. And it wasn't long before I just was just thrashing the thing around like I would normally anything. And that's uh, that, that's what I've been doing ever since. I think I have about a thousand miles on that first one, and uh, and now I've started to ride the the new version. Just started riding the the updated uh, version. Yeah, and so I guess I'd just be interested to hear kind of where you're at at this point. Like you just alluded to, you've been referring to the latest batch as V2, and um, I guess both curious about what's changed from V1, what you learned from doing that, and what you've got in mind as far as production and next steps and all that go. Yeah. So we, we shed a bunch of weight off of V1. V1 was, was pretty heavy. V2 were in that, um, do my kilogram to, to pound conversion and everything. We're, we're, we're at about eight and a half pounds. We're 3.6, 3.7 kilos, uh, on the frame. And that lets us build up to that, you know, 34 and a half, 35 pound, uh, bike range, which for, for that kind of travel and, you know, you're running like a Fox 36 size fork on it, you know, one way or another. So, um, for that type of burly trail bike, that's where I needed to be to make it effective. So big part V1 to V2 was, uh, can we take weight off all the low hanging fruit, the stuff that was like super like either machine that way for simplicity's sake or, or just, left really chunky like where could we take the weight off so we ended up taking a, a ton of weight out about 600 grams off from v1 to v2 um v2 is bead blasted and anodized v1 was just raw aluminum i went out and rode it you know don't don't do that i was trying i was going to have it anodized and i did the, the anodizer was all backed up and they lost my parts for a while it took forever so you know all those trials and tribulations but it's a much more finished product uh, the, the, the finish is, is much smoother. Um, the weight's been decreased and then it's almost impossible to list them all, but just a myriad little refinements all over the place here and there. Like, what are we going to do with cable routing here? What are we going to do with this? Uh, how's this have to work? And so just all these little details, uh, accounting for, uh, a little, uh, bash plate underneath, which is almost hilarious because I mean, these things like the frames are impenetrable you know I and mean, it's not like a tube you know with the cnc machine 7075 i hear stuff hit the bottom of the the butt you know rocks get kicked up and smack into the bottom of the the tube and it's like you don't dent these things like i imagine if you shot it you know with a with a shotgun or something you would put a hole in it but like stuff that comes flying up doesn't really dent them but nevertheless you got to have a little bash guard on there or whatever so you know we we have the mounts now for the for the little skid plate underneath the down tube um, and then a tailgate thing, cause that, you know, the, you don't want to mark up the, the frame and everything too much. So little pieces like that, that's kind of where we are with that level of refinement as nailing down some of those things and figuring out, uh, those little hardware details I was mentioning, like I got to get, uh, the final little pivot hardware 
to, to actual spec and everything. And then that's, that's where the company is. But what this process lets you do is it lets you create a, a fairly finished looking product. So it's fairly far along that way and it's fairly far evolved. Now, the next step is sending them off for lab testing. I'm probably going to work with ACT Labs uh, down in California. Um, they've let me know that if we uh, pass all the basic testing, we got ways we can throw even more at it to kind of see what it can handle all total um, because it, it, it is a novel frame. We're certainly not the only ones bonding aluminum at this point and and everybody's still freaked out like it's a glued together frame and it's like yeah you you're in a plane man there's a lot of stuff glued together in your plane too we're not talking elmers here this is some pretty serious stuff like what it's capable of doing is incredible and you don't have the post heat you don't have post uh assembly heat treat issues and stuff like that it's amazing what this stuff can do and that's usually the bonding area usually isn't the weak spot. What you got to worry about is wall thickness on your aluminum and stuff like that, because the, the bond is usually incredibly strong. So, uh, you know, working out those little details, we're pretty far along to having an actual product. And um, I, I needed a way to gauge interest to see, does anybody even want these things? Because, you know, it is a labor of love, but at the same time, it's a really expensive labor of love. So I, I, if there's no market there, I don't want to be doing it. You know, I'm willing to, to take the risk and do all this stuff just for the sake of developing the product and finding new ways to make bicycle frames. But uh, I did allow pre-orders once I saw that, okay, it has the potential to be a viable product because I was just interested to see, does any, does any, would anybody be interested in something like this? And the response to that has been pretty tremendous. Um, I'm only going to make 20 of them out of the first uh, batch is kind of what's planned. And uh, and there's, there's quite a few pre-orders already. So at a certain point, I'll probably cancel the, you know, stop the pre-orders because I want to, I'm doing this right. I want to have warranty stock. I want to have all these basic things to support. I would rather be small and have customers that are really happy than try to grow too fast and piss a bunch of people off with, with, with not just shoddy product, but like shoddy behavior is just unacceptable to, to me. I do a lot based on reputation. And so, um, that's kind of where, that's kind of where I am. Um, and, and so, uh, Moving to testing next, continuing testing. I put the casting call out for a uh, test rider because uh, I no longer bounce when I hit the ground. I just sort of like flatten and stick. And so I need somebody faster and more skilled and, and less uh, frail than myself at this point. And so I put the call out and got some really fantastic candidates um, from all over the world. So thanks, everybody. Or like, I was... Uh, it's over a hundred people at this point that got in touch, you know, to, with an interest in, in being a test rider. But fortunately where I'm located in this Southwest Washington sort of North Oregon uh, area, there's, there's a, a lot of really, really cool riders uh, doing really cool things. And a lot of them have experience even in the industry and everything. So I'm in the process now of going through that, um, finding somebody to, to take a V2 and uh and go thrash it around and be testing it in addition to me in addition to the lab and if we make it through all that then i'll be pretty confident that uh we have something we can start shipping to people i mean obviously number of steps along the way still and uh i'm sure this sure. won't be super exact but when are you thinking you might be able to start shipping bikes then uh, there's still the potential to hit 
the late spring summer thing. I mean, if we pass the tests to the degree that I want to pass them and we get enough miles on everything, um, the one thing that is convenient is there's not a lot of variability, as I say. So if you can, you know, you got one product, the methodology, everything is real dialed and, and simple, very simple and repeatable. So when, if, you, if a product demonstrates that it can get the job done, we're, we're ready to go. And that's one of those things that um, you don't have to build out this super elaborate manufacturing process. You can, you can make, you know, a certain small batch of them uh, a year really effectively with really high precision and repeatability. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're still aiming for there is the potential to, to do something provided we pass all the tests and everything's fine. Um, we we could have we could have people on some stuff this summer if uh, if all goes well and and there's a lot of ifs and the way I did it like I'll allow pre-orders but you know plan on getting your money back like I, it's all it's all refundable and everything it's just if you want to reserve one I'm not going to have enough you know to to go around if I, if people do want one um, but I'm going to make them available and then if it works that's just one size next step more sizes more stuff um, it's a I'm not really building just a product. I'm trying to build a production process and a method. And so, uh, you know, when people are like, hey, man, would you make a downhill bike? There's a part of me that's like, yeah, I, I want to do all this stuff. <laughs> like this is there. You can do such cool stuff once you have this kind of uh, capacity, you know, this sort of structure built. Yeah. Well, Chris, there's a lot going on there and it's all pretty exciting. It's been fun following along on your social media too and been great having this chat about all of it so appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and best of luck getting those next bits of things lined up and start sending some bikes out the door pretty excited to see that all come together and might also need to chat after this about finding time for me to swing down and throw a leg over one at some point here yeah yeah you gotta take one for a spin please please do thanks very much for having me on and it, it's a, it's a work in progress we're trying to do things a little different and uh it's exciting to see where it goes totally agreed uh looking forward to finding more and getting a little ride at some point so thanks again chris this has been great and appreciate you taking the time to come on thanks for having me that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas, and as always, we would appreciate you leaving us a rating or review to help keep the show growing and going and get a bigger audience out there. So please do that, and I also want to say thanks to Chris for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody.